Good evening and Merry Christmas. It's a great pleasure and privilege to add my welcome to uh, Ben's at the start of the service. Uh, if we don't know each other, my name's uh, Nick Tucker. I'm uh, vicar here at Bishop Hannington. Uh, and uh, I don't know how uh, you feel in the build-up to Christmas. It's a bit of a mix, isn't it? There's the sort of pressure of uh, buying presents, the even greater pressure of replying to family WhatsApps asking what you want uh, and just getting everything in place. Uh, but uh, I find an evening like this really sort of lifts my spirits and really gets me in the, the Christmas mood. And, and there's so much about Christmas that is connected to and related to music, isn't there? After all, the Christmas number one slot remains, even in these days of streaming charts, absolutely the most coveted uh, chart position of the year. Even if it's the case that it's basically the same three songs every year now that are at the top. Wham's Last Christmas, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, and it may be an aberration this year, but The Fairy Tale of New York uh, by The Pogues. Now, at least one of those, I would suggest all three, have become kind of cultural icons, have shaped much more than just uh, the music scene around them. Uh, Wham's Last Christmas has spawned a game which everyone is playing, whether you know it or not, called Whamageddon. Do you know about Whamageddon? You're playing until you hear Last Christmas by Wham, at which point you're out. So I'm guessing most of us are probably out. But it hasn't just spawned a game, it also spawned a movie. Uh, how many of you have seen Netflix's film Last Christmas? Have you, there's a couple of hands going up. I wouldn't recommend it, to be quite honest with you. Um, it feels to me like one of those films that seemed like a great idea when they had the meeting down the pub towards the end of the night. And you can just imagine, going, oh, we, Last Christmas, it's huge, isn't it? We should make a film about it. All oh, right, what are the lyrics? Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. Okay, okay, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. Why don't we have a film in which a woman falls in love with the ghost of the man whose heart was given to her in a heart transplant on Christmas Day? <laughs> I, as I say, not the best film ever made. But um, Christmas songs kind of get to us, don't they? And they get into our heads and into our hearts uh, and they kind of generate Christmas spirit within us. But what's weird about those three songs, Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy, and yet each of those three songs is a song of, of yearning, of loss, of grief, of pain, projected against that incongruous background of celebration and festivity and joy. We know don't we, that Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy. We hear the message of the angels. It's there in uh, our reading from Luke's Gospel that Charlie read for us a moment ago, right in the middle uh, of your orders of service, just on the right next to the little number 10. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. We know that Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy. We feel that is a festive, we call it the festive season. And yet so much of our culture at Christmas more widely actually projects misery onto that background of joy and celebration. I was recently reading um, Richard Osman's latest book, The Last Devil to Die. I don't know if you've, if you've read it yet. But um, the beginning is set around Christmas time, and one of the uh, 
one of the characters, he has her writing in her diary. Uh, and at one point, as she's reflecting on Boxing Day, she writes, what is it about Christmas? It makes the bad things seem so much worse, and the good things seem so much better. Christmas is a season for joy, and yet I think we'd all be aware, wouldn't we, that there are many people for whom this is a very difficult time of year. Where actually the expectation of joy makes misery, makes grief, makes hardship all the more difficult to bear. I was quite struck, I, I listen to podcasts when I'm walking the dog or doing the washing up, and um, there are adverts on every podcast I listen to at the moment offering online therapy for people who are finding the festive season difficult to bear. It's quite striking, isn't it? Is this really a festival of joy, or is it more that, while the good things seem better and the bad things seem worse, it's a joyful time for those who are already full of joy, who have money in the joy bank, if you like. But for those who are overdrawn there, Christmas is not necessarily the most fun moment in the year. Now that's, I think, how things are, but it is not, I think, how things should be. We've heard five readings from the Bible this evening. Three of them came from at least 700 years before Jesus was born. The first actually from well before then, written a thousand or so years before Jesus was born, but pointing to a time much further into the dim and distant past, to the first two human beings. And each of those readings spoke of the birth of a baby who was to come. And it's what that baby came to do that is at the heart of the message of the angels who say, I have come to bring good news that will be of great joy to all the people. Culturally, these days, it feels like Christmas joy is for some of the people, that Christmas joy is rationed, that it belongs to those who are already lucky. But the angels say, this is joy for all the people. No matter whether you're living your best life or whether you're barely living life at all. Why is that? What is so special about this baby? Well, when we think about what he came to do, or at least what those prophets speaking hundreds of years before his birth said he would come to do, well, it's rather breathtaking. Why don't we start with Isaiah on the second page? The reading that begins, the people walking in darkness, just on the right-hand side there. Isaiah's looking forward to the birth of a baby. Look down at the bottom, next to the little number six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. But what is it that that son, that child, is going to do? He is going to bring light in a dark world and peace in a world full of chaos and enmity and violence. He is going to end slavery. That's little number four. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. It's a picture of release from slavery. Uh, the, the, the yoke the slave would wear over their shoulders snapped in two. The slave suddenly set free. 
Oppression ended. And then little number five, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The birth of this baby is bad news for the military-industrial complex because the, the weapons of war and the outfits worn in war will be utterly obsolete, good for nothing but thrown into the fire. Because this child is going to come, bring light in the darkness and peace in the chaos, an end to enmity, an end to bitterness, an end to war. If you flip over onto the next page uh, and to Micah, who was writing in a different place, but at the same kind of time uh, as Isaiah, he says something very similar, doesn't he? If you look at the little number three, uh, halfway up the page, it says, he'll judge between many peoples. He will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. A picture of intense peace against the background of war ended once and for all. This time, the weapons not thrown into the fire, but remade into items for human flourishing. And then in that very first reading we heard, it makes sense of what is being said about that baby. So again, there's a picture uh, of a baby to be, to be born. Uh, halfway down that, that, that first uh, page on the right, little number 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Well, who is the you there? The you is the serpent that wily creature in the garden who bamboozled Eve and Adam into turning their backs on their creator, into turning away from the God who made them and who blessed them and who gave them every good thing, the God of plenty and of peace. They turned away from him, tricked by this crafty serpent who we find out later in the Bible stands for the devil. And just at the end, there in that little verse, God foretells the day when a child born of a woman will crush the head of that serpent, will bring to an end the reign of death and destruction that he brought in by leading humanity away from their creator he led them to turn in on themselves, away from God, away from each other, full of conflict and hatred and violence. But this baby will bring an end to all of that. And if you look closely at this verse, there's something very striking about it. I wonder if you noticed it when we heard it read by Jane earlier on. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. It's just a hint, but it's the first clue in the Christmas puzzle. Because here is a baby who it looks like is just born to a woman. 
and there's no mention of any man involved. It's not between your offspring and that of the man and the woman, but just between your offspring and hers. You might have noticed it in our reading from Luke's Gospel where Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem and Luke tells us, and there she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. One of the things I suppose most people know about the Christmas story is that Jesus was born to a virgin. He was the son of a human woman, but not of a human man. The very first book of the Bible, written more than a thousand years before he was born, points to that reality. Our reading from Isaiah points to the fact that he would be born in the line of King David and that he would reign on David's throne. 730 years before, about 700 years before, in the reading we heard from Micah, we're told that this baby would be born in Bethlehem. And in fact, as you read through the Old Testament of the Bible, these pictures of what was going to happen at the birth of this baby just stack up and in detail and at lots of different points, they point to the circumstances and the events and the nature of his birth. It's true to say that from the very beginning of the human race, the world had been holding its breath for the birth of this baby because of what he would achieve. The undoing in the end of everything that has gone wrong with the world. The healing of the nations. The healing of every broken human heart that would turn to him. But why is it that this long-predicted, long-prophesied baby could be able to do such an extraordinary, such an unimaginable thing? Well, Isaiah and Micah both give us hints. They both point to the oldest baby ever born. So we read at the end of our little reading from Isaiah, he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A baby who's called Everlasting Father? In Micah, just next to the big number five, we read this. You, Bethlehem of Prather, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And John, in our last reading that Amber read for us so beautifully a moment ago, just on the last page, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. A baby born who is older than any human. How can this be? Well, John begins at the beginning. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him were all things made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. 
There's this individual that John calls the Word, who has been with God and has been God himself. And then, astonishingly, John goes on to say that Word, that eternal person, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Long awaited, long predicted, long prophesied, God himself came into the world at Christmas to turn the world back the right way up, to put what right all that had gone wrong, to bring an alienated people back to the God who made them. The son who was promised is full of promise. And notice what he offers to everyone who will turn to him. It's the little number 12 in that reading from John's Gospel. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent nor human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Family can be a blessing or a curse at Christmas, something to be rejoiced in or lamented. But the fundamental joy of Christmas comes here, that God says to anyone who would come, come and be part of my family. Come and be my child. Come home to me. And I will mend what's broken. I will heal what's ailing. And I will give you life forever. That's not means tested. That Christmas joy isn't for those who are already joyful. That Christmas joy reaches out to any who would receive it. And God says, if you'll come, welcome to the family. If there's even a chance that that's true, that is genuinely the best news that you have ever heard. And if you believe it, it can give you Christmas joy regardless of your circumstances and can make this Christmas the most joyful you have ever known. So in the spirit of that, may I wish you a happy, a merry, and a joyful Christmas this year.